The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, last week I spoke, uh, I spoke about, um, I spoke about what takes me away and I think uh, many people away from, from being mindful, from being present in here. And, uh, and I looked at it, uh, um, in, in the, the lens, the container of looking at the precepts the training precepts, uh, uh, and what is wholesome and unwholesome uh, in the Buddhist teachings. And, uh, and I talked a little bit about uh, uh, the precepts in general and um, the five training precepts and also the, uh, the bodhisattva precepts that I've learned in the Zen tradition. And, um, and last week I spoke about uh, wise speech and... Um, excuse me. I spoke about wise speech, and as as for me being a really primary uh, way that I get lost, and that I forget to be mindful. And uh, I wanna I wanna continue talking about hopefully a couple of other uh, precepts, and uh, at least you know I'll, I'll start with one, and I'd love to get to the other one. And um, and also once again talking about them in light of um, the uh, the precepts that are familiar here in the in the insight practice and as well uh, in the in the, the Zen precepts and I want to talk about uh, the precept of. Um, in the Bodhisattva precepts, it's called uh, a follower of the way does not harbor ill will. And the Buddha talked about um, uh, ill will as well in, in his teachings on the wholesome and the unwholesome. I'll actually just go through the, the paragraph again. Um, uh, the Buddha taught, and what, friends, is the unwholesome? What is the root of the unwholesome? What is the wholesome? What is the root of the wholesome? And he begins with the unwholesome. He just sort of switches, switches it to wholesome later. But it's the same, the same things. He says, killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not giving, given is unwholesome. Misconduct in sensual pleasures is unwholesome. False speech is unwholesome. Malicious speech is unwholesome. Harsh speech is unwholesome. Gossip is unwholesome. Covetousness is unwholesome. Ill will is unwholesome. Wrong view is unwholesome. This is called the unwholesome. And abstaining from all of those, each one is the wholesome. And uh, so he talks about, he, 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 one of them is ill will is unwholesome. And in the Bodhisattva precepts, it's, it's, it's worded, it can be worded different way different ways, but, um, but essentially what it says, uh, and I love the word, it's so interesting, uh, a follower of the way does not harbor ill will, but rather cultivates loving kindness, understanding, and forgiveness. So a follower of the way does not harbor ill will. And one of the things that have really um, uh, interested me 
and it have inspired me to look more deeply at, at, at the Bodhisattva precepts is, uh, is um, is I spend time uh, once a week I'm part of a Zen Sangha that goes into San Quentin prison and this Sangha has been um, has been practicing together since 1998 and uh, and um, a, a Zen teacher one of the Zen Center teachers is the, is the, is the, uh, the teacher who leads leads it and has been doing it since that time and uh, and the men there have been there's a core group that have really been practicing since since 98 and these men are, are you know they're in prison for many of them are in prison for for life and um, which means a really long sentence and possibly the chance of getting out after many years and um, and they're in there for you know for for violent crimes and um, so here they are. They've chosen to come to the song and practice. And, uh, and so we're looking at the precepts now because several of these men are going to be part of um, a formal ceremony of taking these precepts in a, in a ceremony. And, um, and so they've been giving talks, the men who are going to be taking the precepts, every week they're giving talks. They're choosing a precept and they're giving talks. And several of them talked about um, ill will, uh, and they were they're, they're looking at and they're committed to uh, the practice of not harboring ill will. And so this word harbor, uh, harbor. When I think of a harbor, I think of a safe place, a, a place where a boat can come in, boats can come in, and know that it's safe and know that it's protected. And uh, so that's, that's interesting, to not harbor ill will. Uh, and the men at uh, San Quentin, um, when we were talking about that, because here they are in this, in this place where there's, there's, they're wanting to practice peace and mindfulness, and, um, and it's so they know it's not, it's not safe to let ill will out. And ill will can often be the word, you know, is often um, used uh, interchangeably with anger. And so anger really resonates with the men at San Quentin. They understand that. They're in a place where they, 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 um, they, it's, they don't want to let this anger out. And they're, and they're coming to an understanding of, of the anger that's within as well. And so, so there's a way that uh, not, not harboring ill will, um, they wonder if harboring it, in fact, is having a safe place for the anger to be inside is maybe a, a good thing. You know, keeping this ill will safe so it doesn't go out, this anger, so it doesn't go out and hurt others. And, um, and I think that's, you know, it's interesting. I think that that can be almost part of the process uh, for, for people who are perhaps prone to anger, to letting it out, is, um, is first learning in that process to not let it spill over and out into the world. And uh, it takes some time to see that, in fact, we don't want to even have a harbor. We do not want to harbor ill will. And... Um, 
And I see that. I see that. I see that with some of the men that they have an understanding that, in fact, uh, uh, um, an antidote for ill will is uh, loving kindness, is caring, and. Uh, And it's interesting. I was having, I was having, uh, I was talking with a friend yesterday. It's so rich uh, studying these precepts because it's, you know, it's it's our life. How do we live our life in a way that's not harmful, that's um, that's uh, brings happiness and peace and ease and freedom to ourselves and to others. But uh, but but we were talking about that sort of process of of not harboring ill will and how. Um, uh, and we were talking about something and, and, and that was somewhat charged. And we we're looking at, last week I talked about why speech and looking at our speech around it. And I, and I joked and I said, uh, uh, in the past, you know, I've had friends where we're practicing mindfully, but we decide that we're going to, you know, we're going to allow um, 10 minutes to complain about the situation. <laughs> you know, 10 minutes mindfully we will allow ourselves, and you know, oh, okay, ten minutes are up. We'll stop, and um, and we talked about that and laughed, of course, but uh, but realized that um, even that, you know, even that leaves a residue of anger and pissed offedness in the heart. Even that ten minutes uh, feeds that place in our consciousness that, um, that is really, you know, that has that pattern of, um, of being angry. And so it's that harbor inside of me that, that's keeping ill will, anger, irritation, impatience safe. That's keeping it safe. So, um, So, like, why am I doing this? Why, why do we do this? Why do we make this commitment to not harbor ill will? Uh, really, it's a huge commitment to not even allow that 10 minutes or that one minute of anger uh, to, to um, allow the light of the precepts uh, to, to shine in and... and to shine into the harbor, actually, and, and to say, oh, no, you know, this is what we want in this harbor. We don't want anger. We don't want ill will. Uh, we want to cultivate a heart that is caring, a place of loving kindness, a harbor that's filled with loving kindness. Wow. So metta, loving kindness, are you familiar? Everyone mostly familiar with that? And, and perhaps the practice of, of metta and um, caring. And for ill will is, is aversion, is, is uh, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings, the, um, it talks about what is the root of the wholesome um, and what is the root of the unwholesome. And the root of the unwholesome is um, greed is a root of the unwholesome. Hate is a root of the unwholesome. Strong word, Hate. Delusion is a root of the unwholesome. And, and hate or aversion is, is the not wanting, the pushing away is the root of the unwholesome. And so I find it, it can be quite helpful at times to really look at that strongly as hate, ill will, you know. And, and still to remember um, that it can be just that subtle resentment 
and, um, and impatience and not liking and, and, and how rationalize, rationalizing it can come up. I, uh, on meditation retreats, I can see it a lot where uh, they're so... I mean, it's still, it's quiet, we're not talking. Uh, it's, it's pretty conducive to, to ease, and yet still I can see in my mind um, my irritation come up and how I can create um, separation and see another person as the enemy. Um, an enemy, just, just like that. You become my enemy if uh, I want to get through the T-line I want to get a cup of tea, and the line is long sometimes on meditation retreats in the dining hall. And, um, you know, the energy is in me. I want to get through it. I want to get out of the dining hall. My aversion um, to, to that energy in a dining hall on retreat is quite strong. And I, usually I just avoid it and don't even go down there except during off times. But if I choose to go down there, and there's a line of people... Um, it may be subtle. It may, I, I could call it impatience, but there's a way that those people, that energy that, be, that, that, that is subtle, can turn those people into the enemy. And these are people that, you know, at the end of the retreat, when, it, when it's, we've, we've started talking, I love, you know, but... but um, But these, these are how enemies are born, really, just with that seed. Uh, as always, you know, driving is, is a wonderful way to, to um, practice and to see this. And uh, you know, in the, back in the Buddhist times, they had the Buddha to wake up with. And I'll tell you, driving really is an opportunity for, for us to wake up uh, and to see that. And cars are such a place of separation anyway, you know, the actual physical separation and our car, our place. And to see, um, to see that, how, how that place becomes, um, that, that someone pulls out in front of us like we somehow own that space in front of our car and, uh, and make up a whole story about who that person is. And just the irritation arising. And I see it, you know, the mind stream, just the words that go on and on in my mind about this as I'm driving. And I actually find it quite helpful to say them out loud, to say, you know, get, or maybe even sing it, you know, get out of my way, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Please don't do that. You know, it's, I do that. I vocalize it because um, it's just this judging. And um, it can be painful. It can be really painful to do that. And it can be painful when I'm practicing not to do that. Uh, so, so it takes a lot of patience, too, as a practitioner when we make that commitment to, um, to see that in the light of the precepts, to let the precepts shine in and say, you know, and, and oh, my God, look at my mind. Look what I do. You know, look at how much I hate. Look at how much I hate. Look at how impatient I am. Um, I make this commitment to not harbor ill will and bringing in um, patience. This is a book called Being Upright, and it's on the Zen Meditation and the Bodhisattva Precepts by Reb Anderson, who is a Zen Center teacher for 
any of those who haven't heard of him. And uh, he says that uh, patience is an antidote to anger and the primary condition for enlightenment. Through patience, your vision clears and you see the dependent co-arising of pain, frustration, and anger. Practicing patience does not mean get gritting your teeth and ignoring the pain, but developing and expanding your capacity for experiencing pain, opening wide enough to feel the pain without either running away or wallowing in it. When you practice patience, the path to harmful anger is blocked. You can face the pain and relax and breathe with it. And I really like that because it's... um, it's saying, don't run away from it. Don't rationalize it. And it's okay if I feel that way. You know, the mind can just go from, from feeling it to rationalizing it to having, then beating yourself up for rationalizing it, just on and on, but, um, and, then, and then acting on it. But to say, let's see this. Let's see this clearly. You know, bring in big patience, you know, mahav, that's a, that's a word, big, big patience to allow, allow us to um, see the ill will, see the anger, and, uh, and replace it uh, with caring. Replace it, see it so clearly that, that we see the pain and the fear. Because oftentimes, it's just fear, just fear. That's sort of a justice, you know. It's fear, and and think of think of anger that comes in when, um, for me as a parent, uh, when I when there, I remember one time that uh, my daughter uh, was and I were crossing the street, and she took a step. She was still quite young in front of me, and a car was coming really fast, and uh, and I hadn't been holding my daughter's hand. And so I grabbed my daughter. I just got so angry at the driver. You know, I got so angry, and I yelled at the driver. And uh, she was just driving, perhaps a little too fast. But this, it, was, it was some really bad energy I was directing her way. And, um, and it was out of fear. It's because I was afraid, you know. And our anger so much has that circle of fear, you know, that's, that's, that's behind it or around it. So the patience to really see into that is um, allows the light to come in into that harbor. So for a couple of minutes, I'll talk about uh, um, the other precept that I wanted to bring in. And the Buddha spoke of it as Covetousness. Covetousness is unwholesome. And uh, in these precepts, there's a couple of ways. I like the, I like the one that we used at, um, at St. Quentin. Um, it's a follower of the way is not possessive of anything. And here uh, in these um, Bodhisattva precepts, it's, a fol- it's worded, a follower of the way does not attach to anything even the teaching, but rather cultivates mutual support and shares the Dharma with all beings. And uh, it's often taught in that way, quite specifically, that a, uh, a follower of the way does not, um, does not, is not possessive of the Dharma. But, uh, but I, like a, I like that. A follower of the way is not possessive of anything. And I was inspired to talk about this because on Sunday, 
um, one of the men uh, spoke about this, uh, used this precept, and and it was it was really it was really interesting and um, inspiring to see his practice since he's begun on this path. And he spoke a little bit about his life, and he. Um, And he talked about material possessions because, you know, not possessive of anything also includes that. And he talked about his life uh, growing up and, um, and then he talked about in being in prison and how so many uh, of the men, they have, they have the cells, their cells, and they have a lot of things of their cells, in their cells, and they, um, they believe that these cells belong to them. And... Um, and a lot of violence uh, and uh, pain and suffering comes up around that perception of the ownership of the cell, uh, and that in prison, that in fact, um, the men have boundaries. They've created boundaries and spaces that they perceive as theirs, and how much violence and anger and hatred come up over a boundary so if you cross my boundary and come into my space, I'm going to hurt you. And um, the young man who was speaking, um, he said two years ago, he gave that up. He relinquished that. He let that go. He said it was really hard to do that. But he saw how much pain and suffering um, that caused him. And he says it's been hard, you know, it's, it's hard to do. And, and, and I can understand that. I, I imagine we all can in some way because I as well cr- create artificial boundaries. I'm, I'm possessive of, of uh, space. Once again on retreat, the same thing is, you know, our cushions be- can become our space and we don't want them moved as a retreat manager I can get notes from people who talk about someone, you know, moving their cushions away. Uh, uh, I was on a long retreat one time, a two-month retreat, and where I put, I had my space, my space in the cloakroom. So this was my space that somehow, you know, my, my cup was on the shelf up above, and I, this was my space. And, and in the second month of the retreat, Someone came for the second month, and this person had a yoga mat who, in the corner of my space, propped her yoga mat. This person propped their yoga mat. Uh, And sometimes it looked a little different. You know, sometimes it wasn't there, sometimes it was. And I spent so much of the retreat just, like, seeing that there and, like, feeling the pain of my space, having that yoga mat there, and seeing how... Okay, today she had it just, you know, she's keeping it really tightly in the corner. Now she has it out way too much. And this is where I usually put um, my notebook and I put my extra cushions. And, you know, it is. I mean, it's, it's funny and it's painful to see that. I just, I just sat um, a two-week retreat with Gil teaching. And, and he gave a teaching which uh, I'll actually will repeat um, but but it's it's I'm still I'm still um, 
looking at it. I'm still thinking about it. But, but, uh, but it, it really is something I practiced with for the whole two weeks. And uh, the, um, the, the words he used, uh, some, some, a teaching of the Buddha was, uh, it, it might not be, it might not be mine. It will not be, it will not be mine. And so... Um, to be possessive of something, to possess, uh, creates ownership. It creates a me, and um, and this mind that that happens. And on on this retreat, this two week retreat, uh, I would I would I would look at this a lot. And, and in front of me, there was there was someone sitting, and this person had a clock sitting in front of their cushion. So I was looking at that clock a lot. And, it, and I, I was like, why does someone have a clock on retreat? You know, and, 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 and after this teaching, I thought, oh, I actually believe that that space, that clock and habits is mine. And, and so I just would think, oh, it just might not be mine. <laughs> and I thought about that a lot on retreat. You know, if someone was on what I called my walking path, it just might not be mine, you know? It just might not be. And, and so, there has to be a creation of this me, this, this, this Kathy, uh, in order to own these things and um, to perceive that, that parking space that someone pulled into before me that's my parking space. Like, how can that be? It's just a space. Um, but there's, there's, the, there's the me that arises that wants that space. And um, maybe that comes out of some fear, some, some, some fear. I mean, and, and once again, it can just be, gosh, I need that space because I have to get here. I have to get in there quickly because I have to get there. But, but that's really rationalizing it. Again, that's really believing my own story of why that is my space, why that space or that clock is. And, and it's really interesting to, to, to practice. It's really interesting to practice and to feel into that and to feel the, the, the unpleasant quality of that, that wanting it to be, um, wanting that space to be empty. And to see that, to see where the pain, where the suffering is um, in there, which, once again, seeing into that gives the opportunity to, um, you know, why, why not have a, um, don't create a harbor for covetousness, covetousness either, for possessing in that way. Uh, a way that causes harm and to see into that and allow the light of the precepts to, uh, to shine in there and, and let, it, let, it, let it be seen and let it, um, you know, let it fall away. I'll read you a couple, a couple of things from Reb Anderson that he wrote about this, this precept. The uh, follower of the way is not possessive of anything. He said, this precept points to a disease and a wonder. The dis-ease is stinginess. The wonder is giving. 
Stinginess is a tightness, a constriction of the heart. We don't allow ourselves to be ourselves when we're stingy. There's a word. There's a word. I'll read this part about the light of the precepts because I, I got that from Reb's book. Thoroughly studying ourselves in terms of these bodhisattva precepts, we come to see the light of the precepts. Seeing this light, we respond appropriately in a liberating way without any deliberation. Well, maybe a little deliberation sometimes, but less and less. The light of the precepts show us the way, but anger and fear obscure the light. Still, being gentle, loving, and fearless with our anger, we become intimate with it, and the light reemerges. So perhaps it's that play and that dance of um, some deliberation of uh, of the the light, the light, the the light being obscured by our greed, hatred, and delusion, and um, and then the light shining in the precepts actually looking at it in the terms of the precepts uh, being that light and shining into the harbor and, and, and allowing the layers of um, the layers of the greed and hate and delusion to be seen and, and the particulars of our own story, yes, can be helpful, but just to see the, um, the fear and the pain and the suffering and And allow them to fall away. See when that happens. And so why do we do this? Uh, why do we do this? Uh, uh, for freedom? For, um, for our availability, our presence with others? And what happens when, when we do this? Uh, when, when, the, um, when, the un- when the unwholesome states fall away, you know, when the harbor is, is not a safe place for them. The har- what, what, what is safe in the harbor? What is there? And the Buddha talks about the wholesome and the unwholesome. And, and really quite simply, when the unwholesome is absent, the wholesome, the wholesome is here. The, the uh, abstaining from killing, le- killing living beings, having um, non-covetousness, non-ill will, right view as opposed to wrong, wrong view is wholesome. When there's an absence of, non, of ill will, then there's non-ill will. So, uh, so wholesome states in the absence of the unwholesome and the uh, absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, I think, I believe that actually our natural states are one of um, kindness, of caring, of peace, of ease, of generosity. When we're not caught up in our fear and our pain, so caught up that we can't see, then what is natural for us, I believe natural in our hearts, is a heart that is free and... um, so free that it can shine out and be present with love for the rest of the world, 
You got to have it inside here first, huh? Um, I think that's it. Thank you. I'd love to um, uh, hear any comments or questions from any of you. Um, I find that I've been harboring, if that's the word, you've, it's one you've used, harbor anger for something all my life. Okay. It's usually hidden, um, but every once in a while it pops out and pops out in, un, in sometimes inexplicable ways. So I, and I didn't hear you say how one might go after that kind of anger, the one that's deep-seated, um, and and change it or let it out of the harbor or whatever the right metaphor is, or whatever a good metaphor is. So, so it sounds. It sounds like. Let me just ask. You're asking that uh, that uh, when, how to work with the anger uh, that spills out, from that spills out. So the anger once it's out in the world, so to speak. Yes. The anger that's inside. Um, thank you for asking that question. Um, I talked about metta, loving kindness, and you're familiar with that, yes. that practice. Um, I believe that, that the practice of sitting still and practicing um, uh, the meditation of, of sitting still and, and being with our breath and being with our body, uh, that um, that's really uh, a really helpful way to allow the, um, allow the anger to be seen inside ourselves. And, um, and what happens when, you know, so what happens when it's seen inside of ourselves? What, what do we do? What do? How do we practice with that? Uh, I, I love the practice of metta, of loving kindness. Um, And I think it can be really helpful, but I don't. But I don't. But I don't see it as a. Um, I mean, it, traditionally, it is an antidote uh, for for ill will, for pain, for anger, for aversion. Have you practiced it, Meta? Um, occasionally. Uh huh. So so I I um, I believe that it can be helpful to actually do a conscious um, practice of of Meta of loving kindness. Uh, bringing in the phrases, um, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the phrases, may I be safe, I'm just saying, for example, may I be safe, may I be happy, and sitting with that, and sitting with that and, and, and bringing it into the heart, uh, perhaps focusing the breath on the heart center. Uh, I think it's beautiful and transformative. Um, for myself, I, uh, I really believe that the, pra- that the practice of sitting still 
and just allowing it to be seen and rather than perhaps bringing in the phrases, uh, just turning the attention in as soft a way as possible to that, to that anger. Um, So that's the sitting practice. Like, what about just when we're out in the world? You know, and, and, and uh, when you feel, that com- you feel that anger and then it's just turned inward. Uh, it sounds like maybe you're asking if beyond just how to work with it in sitting as well, are you? If that's the way to work with it, yeah. Well, if it comes up then... I mean, if um, it, it, I, I have... I have some familiarity with when it pops out, so to speak, mm-hmm. and how to how to cope with that. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I've mastered it by any stretch, but um, but I was really thinking about because it often seems that my anger that pops out is not really related to what's happening at the moment, but rather something deeply inside me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the context of this practice, uh, in, in, in um, mindfulness practice and meditation, I, um, I think those two practices, balanced together, uh, can be really helpful to soften the layers around, around it and allow, um, allow it to be seen. I, I, and, and I really, I really, I really mean that. I, um, it takes time. I think it's helpful as well to talk about it with, um, with practicing friends as well. I think that that's an important piece as well. It's, a, it's amazing what can come out in words in, a, in a, an intentional way to come together with somebody and look at something. If you if you um, would like if you'd like any more um, more detailed uh, uh, instructions around a sitting the sitting, I can talk to you afterwards if you'd like. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I have an. I, is this on? I think it okay. is. I have an idea about that, just to see if it makes any sense. I don't know if it will or not. Is um, let's. Well, you could use anger, but let's use restlessness. So I had restlessness problem, and I didn't like restlessness. Like this gentleman probably doesn't like anger. So restlessness was constantly bothering me, and I said, I don't like you. Go away. And then what happened over a period of time was I made friends with restlessness, and I said, Well, you always keep coming to visit me. What's up with you? I ended up making friends with restlessness, and now restlessness still comes once in a while, but we're friends. And she goes away. And I realized that there was a time when she was quite helpful, but she doesn't, I don't really need her anymore. So I think that by stuffing down anger and being afraid of it and putting it wherever he keeps trying to put it, his anger is very powerful. Whereas if you make friends with anger, anger is going to eventually just disappear. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. There's actually 
something in here that I think of that I read. Let me just look real quick. And you had you had a question too. Oh, hold on one second, just because um, that we want to use the mic. But hold on just one second. Can I say? So along the same lines, I tend to keep it inside, mm-hmm. and when that person comes to me, I, I tend to be over nice with that person, and then do whatever it takes uh, to sort of be friends with that person or be nice to that person with you know. So I. I tend to overcompensate by being um, extra nice, you know, if you had some suggestions. So, so, so you, that you hold it in. Hold it in, but then, hold it in and I drew, 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 but then when the person is in front of me, uh-huh. I just forget it and I'm just extra nice and I'm overfriendly with that person. And is that helpful? Does that help no, uh, you I let go of the anger? So, so it's so you're you're stuffing it in then when you do that. Yeah, isn't it funny how we do that? Um, because I'm not, I, I'm not. I tend to hold in my anger as well, and I'm, I don't see myself as a particularly angry person. Um, but but I've learned, I've learned in practice. I, I've seen the seeds of that. I've seen the ari- the, the rising up inside of me of um, anger and ill will and. Um, I'm like al- always this calm and friendly person, mm-hmm. and and then and I, you know, and that adds to the confusion because I want to keep that view, you know. So, yeah. So uh, it's like one. Um, yeah. It is. A, it is. A, it is um, confusing. Yeah. Um, just one, one, just a second. I just wanted to read something that this reminds me of. This is also from Reb's book, and it's called. Um, um, he talks about inappropriate anger and appropriate anger. Uh, and he's talking about appropriate anger. It says, Warmth is a quality of life. Living beings are always receiving and expressing heat. The expression of heat can animate a person's body and voice and can be experienced as aggressiveness. Aggression is part of being human. It can move things in patient, compassionate, and beneficial ways. It can also be impatient, disrespectful, and cruel rejecting and harming living beings, and I add, including ourselves. Um, The great question is how to harmonize with aggression appropriately and thus discover its beneficial function. Uh, It is a great and beautiful thing when the heat of aggressive energy functions beneficially. So it's interesting is what you're saying, and as well as it is heat and energy. I thought that was very interesting when I read that yesterday. Um, that that there's is there a function is there is there a way that uh, as it's expressed appropriate anger a way that um, um, it can be used in a way uh, uh, like I, I think I was talking last week when as a, as a teacher where there's times or as a parent there's times when I um, I need to speak very strongly and clearly to a child um, and and. And I used to call as a teacher my angry, my, my angry voice, my mad voice. But it was really just a, a loud, clear, like they'll stop in their tracks, which is what I need them to do voice. And um, 
And that's sort of a maturing, a way of taking that energy in a way that's not going to hurt or harm. And, um, and Christi- uh, Christina Feldman um, talked about how when, when we use anger in an appropriate way, uh, that um, there's no, there actually is no residue left. We don't, there is no residue left. There's no thinking in the mind about it afterwards. There's no pain about it. And um, so part of it is, is a way to be able to express it in a way that's going to be, let it, let, let go of and know when, when it can be appropriate and not stuff it in. Hmm. Stuffing it in. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'd like to say I used to, but unfortunately I still do, um, have um, to deal with inappropriate anger. Mm-hmm. I come from a very abusive childhood, and so I, I, I know the psychological stuff about that. You know, it's, so I know it comes up, but it's like, you know, when somebody does something, it's just like, Argh. So a friend of mine, I believe it's a saying of the Buddha, is um, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And so I I had to do that a lot, a lot. I didn't, I I, I don't want to sound like I'm disparaging anybody, but I didn't want to become friends with that anger because it's a poisonous thing from, so, but the thing is that saying, pain is inevitable, Suffering is optional. It allowed me to look at that anger and say, somehow or other, it's inappropriate and be able to, not 100%, but to let go of a great deal of it because Mm -hmm. the optional part is letting it stay. I can't do anything about the fact that it's happened. I can't even do anything about the fact that I'm irritated right now other than to say okay that's that's something that happened there's no it's an it's there's no getting around it so there's an inevitability to it but I don't have to hang on to it so that I don't have to suffer mm-hmm. does that make sense what I'm trying to say it does it does make sense and and I like I like that there's there's more than one way to look at it, and there might even be more than one way to look at it for me or for you at different times. Um, um, because the making friends with it is sort of is sort of like the practice of metta, of of caring for it, of seeing it and saying, "Oh, I see you," you know. And and um, uh, I think it is important to do that. Uh, and. And sometimes it might be too much to do that, uh, to make friends with it. It might not feel safe. Um, so, so there's that balancing of then, um, then sort of saying like, you know, not now, not now. I think that um, it's important though I, I, for myself, and I know that it can happen, is, um, is the not now-ness can just sort of squelch it. Um, and, and, um, and it's, and when it squelch, it can pop up again unexpectedly in my life. That's what I love about mental. Uh, you have an opportunity mm-hmm. to just spread all that around. And I don't know how to explain that, but it's like it becomes... You can use the mic. Oh, That'd be great. Sorry. That's okay. Um, 
it becomes less of this enormity yeah. that can run me, and I get to move away from it. And I, you know, I, I got miles to go. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but I love that there are these tools. Yeah. And the, the, the phrase, which I think is from the Buddha and the metta, have been... I don't. I, I'm, I come from Catholicism. They have been godsends for me. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's a balance. It's a balance. Arthur, did you do you have a mic? Um, so 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 fear and anger are are really painful in the body. Um, they're also painful in the mind. And um, there's an immediate rejection of it. We don't want to have it. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be done with it. And so long as one wants to be done with it and pushes it away, uh, there's never going to be an understanding of what it's about and, and, uh, and how it relates to you. It naturally arises in the body. Um, but it isn't me. Um, and so, um, what I'm working with now is uh, not to make so much friends with anger, but to allow it in and to be mindful of it and to just try to be mindful of what I was thinking just as it arose. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it reflects, I mean, so a thought or an emotion arose, it's touched off by something somebody said that reminded you of something else or it arises because somebody cut you off in the car or whatever, but it arises from some something. Um, and behind that emotion and thought connected with what caused it to arise is a wrong view of something. Mm-hmm. And that wrong view could have been in your life, so it could be a view you picked up when you were three or four years old, or it could be something you picked up a year ago. But the wrong view lives in your mind, and mm-hmm. the only way to be done with it is to see it mm-hmm. and see how it feels and recognize the feeling in the body. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 definitely it's true. Um, I, Kathy, I think maybe pass that down. Um, I'll just say, and that's and that's um, you know that that's that's what the practice allows is to see that's there's 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 this this whole unpacking and untangling uh that happens when we make that commitment to be to be uh mindful um and to shine the light on it and and it it can bring up our it brings up our whole life uh and and we look at our body we look at our mind we look at our heart and um you know, this is this is the practice. It really is. I wasn't certain that I wanted to share this, but somehow it does seem appropriate. Having to care for uh, the woman in my life who had created quite a lot of abuse in my childhood, and on Friday, uh, in spending time with my mother and s- seeing that my heart was beginning to soften, I. I became totally enraged. I was more angry after I left her than I had ever 
experienced in my entire life. And I couldn't find a name for that feeling that I was having, but I thought it was the end of me. And um, I had just spent the morning with you, and somehow you had opened me up the, the, the Tuesday morning with you, and I, I had begun to look at myself differently. And, and I sat, and I meditated, and I cried, and trying to understand why I couldn't understand this anger, this rage that was scaring me. It was hurting my body. And then I knew how I had survived this woman all of these years was by closing off my heart. And what was happening to me in that moment with my mother is that my heart was softening, and I was terrified that I would not survive it. I didn't know how to behave any other way than to that survival mode of closing off my heart. And then I was filled with such immense sadness mm -hmm. that all of these years I had spent not experiencing what I know now I will be open to experiencing with every circumstance in my life. I'm grateful that, that I had the ability to see, to see that it was anger directed to me. That was the only way I knew how to survive for these 73 years. And uh, I'm grateful that I have this to look forward to, this opening and this realization. And, and it was so wonderful to have the people share their own feelings today because that we, that's what gave me the courage. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is good to know, it is good to know and to love myself. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Takes a lot of courage. Takes a lot of courage to show up again and again and again and again and again. Um, and, and this time it's, it's, um, it seems like it's unbearable, you know, this, and you find out it's anger directed towards self and, um, and just seeing it and, and coming back to it or allowing it to be seen over and over and over again. Oh, you're welcome. I, I thank you for being here and, and just all the conditions in place that made that day happen. I think, did you want to? Okay. Oh. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. I also want to say thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I feel I have to say this is going to sound rather trivial, then, but um, an image that just came to my mind while we were talking about befriending anger and it worked for me, I don't know if it speaks to anyone else, is uh, uh, in the just under 60 years that I've been alive, I've had two friends at two very different periods of my life who tried to keep as a pet uh, something that was half wolf, half dog. And one of them was very successful at it, and this wolf became a beloved pet, and the other one just couldn't do it right and had to let it go. And it seems to me that Trying to make friends with your anger is like trying to domesticate a wolf. And uh, it, it might work, but uh, it, it might not. And that just was just something that occurred 
that was just something that bubbled up while, while this conversation was going on. I just wanted to share it. Thank you for that. Um, we're actually uh, just about out of time here. I just wanted to say um, uh, to that, um, I, I, there's, I think the language, maybe the, the language of, of, of making friends, friends with your anger, but it's actually, it's, it's actually quite, you know, it's a sort of a traditional practice and, and um, uh, to do that and, and, and see it as useful and see how anger can be seen and act as I was reading and how it can, can be this energy that can be useful. Um, um, but, it, but I, I think m- most importantly for me is I'm seeing just the different ways that we all practice and what is helpful, what is helpful to each of us and how they can be um, shared and, 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 and balanced, really. Um, it's interesting, the language of it. Can I end on a successful note? Please. Um, so I was with my, a, a friend and she made me very angry and I expressed my anger to her. I told her, what she had done that had made me angry. And she apologized, and she, was, she felt bad, but still I was angry with her, and I couldn't um, get over that anger. And so I decided I would sit down and just be with my anger, and I experienced what it felt like in my belly and my heart and my throat and, and just sat there and felt it and felt it, and, and then it kind of started dissolving and all of a sudden I had this realization what was really angering me about the situation and it was something completely different from what I originally thought had made me angry so then I went and expressed that to her and and we were able to talk about it and and then I really was okay with it so Mm -hmm. I just that was the first time I'd ever experienced how just really going deep within and feeling it in your body mm-hmm. it really had a very mm-hmm. profound impact on me so thank you that's great that's great thank you thank you everybody thank you. Thank you. Are you coming next week? I th- I'm thinking that uh, 